Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we read Psalm 110, a psalm of David. Yahweh says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion, Your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. According to the Lutheran Study Bible, Psalm 110 is cited an incredible 17 times in the New Testament. In the, like, cross-referent note marks in the middle of the page, however, they only mention nine of those, so I don't have all 17 of them at hand to share with you, but it's definitely referenced quite frequently. And really right from the top, right from verse 1. Verse 1 is cited by Jesus in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So Matthew 22, verse 44, Mark chapter 12, verse 36, and Luke chapter 20, verses 42 and 43. Then it's used in the Pentecost sermon by Peter of Acts chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, and in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. So, quite frequent. I would suggest that this is a great way to start this psalm with your children is to look at Mark chapter 12 verse 36, read the text with them. So going back to verse 35, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Or turning to Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, I would suggest after reading the Mark passage, ask your kids to answer Jesus' question. Who is this person? Who is Psalm 110 going to be about? Here's David, Israel's king, and God, Yahweh, the Lord, says to my Lord, Who is this Lord? And then you can follow up with a Pentecost reading where Peter very clearly identifies it as Jesus Christ himself, that God made him Lord, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
So the one who would come from David's own body, the descendant of King David, who, fulfilling the promise made to Abraham many generations before, would be the one to bless all nations by his death on the cross and his Easter resurrection. This Jesus, he is Lord. So anyway, Yahweh says to Jesus, sit at my right hand. Reference to the ascension, reference to ruling at God's right hand, the power, place of power, until I make your enemies your footstool. The enemies of the true king will be defeated. Any given earthly king's enemies may or may not be defeated in their lifetime. Eventually every enemy will fall, because eventually every man dies. Every kingdom fails. But this king, Jesus, his enemies, the enemies that are sin, death, and the devil, which are truly our enemies also, will be made into his footstool. I've heard a couple of different thoughts on the footstool idea here. Either one of them paints the picture of being subjected to, being conquered, humiliation. So the one is literal, in which you would see a a king who's just defeated an enemy, and he makes the enemy bow down, get on the ground, and then he puts his feet on him as a footstool. It shows great humiliation for that defeated man. Also, though, I've heard it said before that in the ancient world, kings would often have the names and perhaps even pictures of a defeated enemy. So an enemy that they defeated, killed, they would have their their name and picture put on an actual footstool. So as they are resting in their palace, their feet are propped up upon those that they have previously defeated, which is also a reminder to anybody else in their court not to try anything. In any case, it is a picture of victory for the one king and, well, defeat of his enemy, humiliation of his enemy. So Yahweh, God the Father, is the way we should take that here. Usually Yahweh in the Old Testament can be seen as the entire trinity, but Yahweh is speaking to Jesus, so we make a distinction there, a subtle one in the trinity, that he's going to make his enemies his footstool. I've already mentioned a few of the spots where this is cited in the New Testament with Luke 20 and Hebrews 1. There's another spot, though, where it's not really cited, but it's definitely referenced. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to start at verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So you can see the various elements of Psalm 110 getting put into that section of Hebrews chapter 10 as the unknown preacher proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Really, the, the preacher to the Hebrews works with Psalm 10 quite a bit significantly. Even the word Melchizedek will come back to that in a little bit here. 
Verse 2, Yahweh sends forth from Zion, so from Jerusalem, his holy city where he dwells, the temple, the house of God, your Jesus, mighty scepter. That's a reference to his rule. Jesus will rule from there, from that spot, from that place. And he will rule in the midst of his enemies. So this then brings us to the picture of Jesus on Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling prophecy in Zechariah 9, verse 9. But that's where he's going to rule, and this is part why the disciples expect a military king. They expect him to set up a, a new palace, a new throne, and to reign there in Jerusalem. And yet, his throne becomes a, a tree of wood, a cross where he rules in the midst of his enemies, of sin, death, and the devil. As the mockery and the torture and the death, the shedding of blood all around, and yet Jesus rules. This is a both and then, though, that you can consider this also to his eternal rule, that he is the perfect king, the true king over all of creation forevermore. But at that point, as you look forward, you come to the judgment day, and after that, the enemies will no longer be around. He will cast them out into the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. That they offer themselves freely is a picture of the, the care that this king provides his people that the people would be willing to even die for him. And this is where we then would connect to Revelation chapter 6, the martyrs crying out from under the throne. Revelation chapter 7, the saints who are dressed in white robes, who've made them white in the blood of the Lamb, that the Christian is willing to even lay down our lives for the word of God, for the gospel, for the good news of Christ's name and what he has done to save. Many Christians have died for that. So we offer ourselves freely. On the day of your power, then, could be taken as a reference to Christ's second coming. But it could also be the time in between, the time of now, that this is the day of his power, as his name is spread through all this earth. And he still reigns. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father now. In holy garments, again, the reference possibly here to the, the robes of the saints. Why we historically have put baptismal garments on our children when we bring them to the water. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. You could make a child baptism connection there, perhaps. Uh, the womb of the morning, that is from when morning dawns, and you're used to seeing dew on the grass in the morning. But youth will be yours. So, God, this King Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, will be loved by adult and child alike. The picture I'm taking here from verse 3. 
Verse 4, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. What has he sworn? You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this king is also a priest. Now it's going to get back to the idea that Jesus is the Messiah, or he is the Christ. Those are the Hebrew and Greek words for anointed one, Mashiach Christos, anointed one. They would anoint three classes of people. They anointed their kings. This is the idea of anoint, to pour oil over the head, to set apart, to mark as set apart for a specific purpose. They anointed their kings, they anointed their priests, and they anointed their prophets. I don't know that they always anointed all three of those classes, but you see anointings of them in the Old Testament. Jesus is all three of those for us, our prophet, priest, and king. He is our prophet in that he speaks God's word to us. He is our priest in that he intercedes between God and man. He stands before the Father on our behalf. And by his sacrifice, our sins are forgiven. And he is our king. He rules over us, cares for us, protects us, provides for us. So here we get a glimpse of that in this psalm. He's the king from verse 1 onward. Now he's the priest as well. After the order of Melchizedek. Maybe this could be another family conversation. Who is Melchizedek? That would be one that if your children are really young, they may have never heard the name. Melchizedek is kind of a mystery to Scripture. He first appears in Genesis chapter 14. So Abraham, his his nephew, Lot, had been abducted, taken prisoner by Keterlaumer and his alliance of kings as they had traveled through and defeated the alliance of kings that included the king of Sodom, taken the people captive, plundered the town, rode off to the north. They were going to pass the, basically go past the Sea of Canareth, Sea of Galilee by the New Testament era, and then hang an east turn, heading back towards the lands of the east. But as they're going, Abraham chases them down, defeats them, frees the people, and brings them back to present them to the king of Sodom, to give the Sodomites back. And that's an appropriate use of the word. That's, I mean, that's people of Sodom were called Sodomites. The Sodomites were returned home. And in this time of this meeting, who comes out to greet them but a man named Melchizedek? We go to Genesis chapter 14 here, to that moment. After his return from the defeat of Keterlaumer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheve, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. We'll pause there. That's it. That's all we see of Melchizedek in the entire Old Testament, except for here in Psalm 110. That's it. Melchizedek, king of Salem. Mel, Melech is the Hebrew word for a king. Zedek is the Hebrew word for righteousness. Salem, 
which is probably their reference to the city of Jerusalem, although it didn't have that name yet, Salem, Shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. Melchizedek, king of Salem, then could also be spoken, king of righteousness, king of peace. Now that's intriguing because if I asked your children, I think I could ask just about any Christian family's children, who is the king of righteousness and king of peace? They would probably answer Jesus. Melchizedek is a mystery. He has no named parents. He comes on the spot. He disappears just as quickly as he comes. But he's described as priest of God most high. Priest, and the priesthood to God will not be established until the Exodus, which isn't for another 400 years. Well, more than 400 years. 1406 B.C.? Eh, somewhere 1446 B.C., somewhere after that is when the priesthood is commanded in, in Exodus. But Abraham's born in 2166 B.C. So it's, it's a gap. And he brings out bread and wine, which foreshadow the Lord's Supper. And he blesses Abraham. Great stuff. Now, Melchizedek is mentioned again in Scripture, by the way. Not until, though, you get to Hebrews. So Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then he's mentioned eight times by the preacher to the Hebrews between chapters 5 and 7. So if you want to read those, if you want to learn more about Melchizedek, that's a, it's a good place to go. It's a good place to go. And, of course, verse 4 will be cited in the book of Hebrews twice. Chapter 5, verse 6, and chapter 7, verse 17. So, this is a different high priestly order than the priestly order of Levi, because again, Levi hasn't even been around yet, let alone been made a priest, or his descendants made into priests. And yet, here's a priest. Jesus is part of this priestly order that transcends the normal priesthood that the Jews would think about. And he's called a priest forever. This priesthood never ends. So he will forever stand between God and man on our behalf. Verses, while verse 1 could be described as Jesus being addressed by God, verse 2 through 4, commissioned, sent to rule, and then verses 5 through 7, given victory. So the Lord is at his right hand. The Lord is at Jesus' right hand. God is on Jesus' side and fighting for him, shattering kings. The day of his wrath. That could be reference to any time God wants to bring judgment or specifically to the judgment on judgment day. It can be both. It can do both purposes in a text. Executing judgment among the nations. We see that plenty throughout scripture. Filling them with corpses, shattering chiefs. God's judgment. He tears down nations. He builds up nations. He raises kings, he tears down kings. He sets over the kingdoms of man, whomever he will. But God is in control. And Jesus is over them all. 
the Lord will fight for his purpose. Defeating his enemies, making them a footstool for his feet. And again, we're talking, now we could transition perhaps to the prince of darkness, to the devil, as the enemy to be defeated. Verse 7, finally, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Water that restores, replenishes, strengthens. If you've ever been so parched, you know that kind of a feeling. Luther, though, took that to Christ on the cross. That is, Jesus was so parched and thirsty on the cross after being given something to drink, he lifted up his head and yielded up his spirit, breathed his last. We could see a connection, perhaps, finally then to the book of Revelation, that there will be a stream of water that flows from the very throne of God, giving water to the new creation, caring for us too, right? As man needs water to live, and God will provide it. So this is a psalm about our Lord Jesus Christ that is frequently brought up, especially in the letter to the Hebrew peoples by the unknown preacher. Lots to chew on as we talk about our Lord Jesus and the mysterious figure of Melchizedek.